Well, hello, everybody. Before we get into today's episode, which is a doozy, let's talk about a sponsor, the Woodford Group. Do Monday mornings get you down? Are you feeling unmotivated in your current job? Then it is time for a change. Let the team at the Woodford Group help you find your dream job today. With a focus on senior executive, permanent and temp roles within the HR, business support and customer service industries, the dedicated team will help you find success and satisfaction in your new job. Visit woodfordgroup.com.au today. So when you when he said yes on the autopsy table in terms of proving the diagnosis, did you walk away from that meeting and go, he's correct? Or did you have a gut feeling that something... No, that, that I, was a- I walked out and I slammed the door and I said, I'm not going to die to prove you wrong. Good on you. Okay. So, but you go through, when you're going through death, you go through all the phases of death that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said in her book on death and dying. You go through anger. You literally are angry at everybody. And Apologies for how echoey this episode is, particularly this intro as I'm sitting in a podcast studio with bare walls. As with the sale of my home, everything has been packed up. Anyway, let's get into it. Today's guest was acknowledged as one of the leading cosmetic dermatologists in the world for three decades. A pioneer in cosmetic surgery, he helped develop laser-assisted trumescent liposuction and Mohs micrographic surgery, an advancement of removing skin cancer with 99% success. He has written 17 books, 30-plus academic papers, and hosted the number one internet radio show in the world, Inside Cosmetic Surgery, today. He is a co-founder of Doctors for the Practice of Safe and Ethical Anesthetic Medicine, and founder of the Canadian Skin Cancer Association. He won the prestigious Consumer Choice Award for Cosmetic Surgery for 16 consecutive years. However, in 2003, his life changed dramatically when he suddenly developed a right foot drop while on vacation with his family in Disneyland. After seeing many doctors being misdiagnosed with ALS and told he had six months to live, he still maintained his status as a leading cosmetic doctor for 30 years. He later discovered he had chronic Lyme disease. Episode 75, Dr. Alan Leica. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Alan. Thank you for letting me be here, Fiona. Now, I call you Alan because I'm an Aussie and we're very informal with everybody, but you are a very uh, distinguished uh, surgeon in your own right in terms of dermatology. So why, why medicine? What made you want to go into medicine and why dermatology in the first place? You know, I, I went through school. I got a BSc honors in psychology and a BA general. And, and really what interests me was working with people, finding out about them, knowing how to fix them, knowing how to do things. So medicine was a pretty normal calling. It was something that was that I aspired towards. And of course, medicine is not an easy field to get into in your country or in mine. So Mm. I had decided that early on in my training, but it took a number of years to get get accepted by one of the medical schools. So I kept trying and kept trying and kept trying. And finally, after I had completed both a, both a BSc honors in psychology and a BA general, I was accepted into medicine. So now when you get into medicine, the first thing you learn is the things you don't like. Now, the things I did not like was to be up all night, uh, doing things. I didn't like the stress of the operating room, the stress of the emergency room. I didn't like the intensive care unit and things like that. So I I learned that those weren't the things that I was going to do. And you know, one of my first electives was to do go to a dermatologist's office. And it was amazing. I mean, you'd uh, People would walk into the dermatologist and within two minutes, the dermatologist knew exactly what they had and knew exactly how to treat them. Now, there's very few fields of medicine that are like that. Usually it takes 70,000 tests to figure it out, et cetera. So, So this was a unique thing. And I said, I want to have that knowledge. Now, so you more into you, you like the quick diagnosis rather than the end, so the long drawn out. 
I, I, I just thought it was the it was amazing that people that anybody could know that much and yeah. within a short period of time to do. So I, I wanted to pursue that path to get into dermatology. Now again, dermatology was just as hard as medicine to get into. Yeah. So I kept applying and kept applying, and I had almost completed my internal medicine residency by the time I was accepted. And I was accepted not in Canada where I live, but at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, Minnesota in the United States. So, so I had, so I doctor, had to I leave. just want to stop you. I just want to understand when you say that dermatology was just as hard as medicine, I would have thought that you would have had to complete a medical degree and then branch off into that specialty. What happens is you, you start applying for residencies and fellowship even as you're doing medical school, because many of these are very, very hard to get into. And so you you have to apply and you have to be accepted. So uh, I started applying early. It took years to get there, but I was wow. able to get in at the end of it. And uh, as I said, I didn't even get uh, accepted in any school in Canada. I got accepted in the United States to get that done. So it's like you in Australia having to apply and go to New Zealand or go to China to get into a fellowship because it, it's that much in demand. I, I don't know any Aussies in medicine going to China for the medical, <laughs> medical degree, but uh I don't, it's not an area that I, I'm too dumb to go into medicine, Doc, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't it, have the sciences it, for let's it. Let's put it this way. It's very competitive <laughs> and it's very hard to, it's very hard to get in. So I was able to get in and I was thrilled to get in. I, I went to the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, which is one of the top dermatology schools in the United States. And so I was able to learn a lot there. The, the big thing about going into dermatology in the United States is it put me years ahead of Canadian dermatologists because, ah. you see, they had all the toys and all the tools down there that we didn't have in Canada till later. Uh, they had lasers to treat skin diseases. They had all these other things. They had advanced means of treating skin cancer, like Mohs micrographic surgery that we didn't have in Canada. They had a lot of exciting things that just weren't happening in Canada then. Uh, you know, Botox was just invented to treat wrinkles and all these things were going on. So I was at the start of a whole new era in dermatology, which was going into cosmetic dermatology. And because I was at the start of it, I was able to modify a lot of it and learn a lot. And I was at the start, so I was one of the pioneers. Was that advancement all of America compared to Canada, or was that just in the university that you went to? No, I think it was the whole trend that was going on. Things were just starting earlier, yeah. you know, you know. Canada was still into diagnosis and clinical diagnosis, and it wasn't into the treatment end of things very much. A dermatologist mm -hmm. in Canada was putting creams on things and things like that. He wasn't using the advanced tools to make people look better and feel better. That's 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 interesting. And I noticed you mentioned Botox, which I have a, a – Obviously, I'm not a medical professional, but I have a psychological issue with putting a nerve agent of botulism into my body. I, uh, yeah, I don't know whether or not I could ever do that. Well, and and I can understand people having that issue, and certainly no one would force it on anybody. But it's interesting that you know people that frown in this area perpetually mm. look mean and they look mad. So just by putting it into that area makes a person look more attractive and makes them look friendlier. So it, it really changes the way a person looks. Now, that's important in many respects, because if you're friendlier and happier, that makes a lot of difference with the way the world perceives you. Is there any data in terms of long-term effects of putting Botox into the body? You know, Botox has now been used for 30 years. It's been used on tens of millions of people. You mm. know, really, it's not. The thing about Botox is it wears off. It's there mm. for four to six months, and then the effects are gone. So there's really no long-term side effects of it because it's not there that long. Okay. All right. I might need to rethink that, get all my 
wrinkles and frowny face sorted out. You you talked about being at the sort of the cutting edge in terms of the technology going back to, to Canada, but you also helped um, develop laser-assisted lipo. Yes. So what was so, that? What's that technique? Well, let's talk about liposuction. When liposuction was first invented, it, a person had to be put to sleep for it. Okay. Mm. And the problem with being put to sleep for liposuction is that would cause a lot of bleeding. So people would have to get blood transfusions. They would have to get a lot. In fact, many people would end up in the hospital for a day or two after a standard liposuction procedure. That all changed in about 1988 when a doctor by the name of Jeffrey Klein invented a way to do it under local anesthesia. So you could put large volumes of a of fluid into the area containing anesthesia, and that would numb up the area enough that you can then take off the fat with virtually no blood loss. So in an average procedure, there is about 10 cc's of blood that was lost. So now all of a sudden, the situation changed. The situation could be done in an enhanced office rather than having to be done in the hospital. It was done in a very friendly, nice way for people. And so people would get it done. They'd be up and around. And within a day or two, they'd be back to their full activities. So it was like a Friday procedure and back to work Monday. So it was a whole different thing from what used to be done. I've now, never heard of it done like that. I, I've only ever heard of it um, being under the, the full anesthetic. And- no. Well, it's, it's called tumescent liposuction. And right. then what happened is the techniques even got even better because then we started to use lasers as well inside the cavity to melt the fat as we were taking it out. So it even became even a more sophisticated technique. And I was one of the first that started that. So we did laser-assisted tumescent liposuction. And so it was a, a very fancy technique for making people heal better, look better, and do better within a very short period of time. Now, you mentioned that was in the cavity. So you're still having to cut open the skin. There's no cutting. It's all done through tiny little holes where a cannula or a cannula or a long tube is put in. So it literally is, there's no cutting at all. It's a very small opening and a small incision. So it isn't harmful to people at all. What's the deal with this new, I'm seeing it advertised a lot on social media, the freezing of the fat technique that's going on. What's the, is that, just a a rubbish advertising thing or is that actually no, you know that that was something that was invented by a doctor from i believe from this harvard the school where harvard is and the people would come to doctors in uh, that area and they'd they would have a problem with what they call lipodystrophy you see in the boston area in winter it gets very cold And so women would sit on their horses and they would get um, the fat literally dissolving in their areas of their inner thighs because of the cold from the saddle that was next to their skin. So this was called, uh, the doctor said, hmm, maybe we can use this in a therapeutic way to make it happen. So there are the doctor from Harvard invented a company that found a precise way to use cold to freeze the fat. Okay. And then the fat would, would in a large, now that's good for small areas of fat. It doesn't work well for larger areas of fat and it certainly doesn't work for everybody, but it worked in enough people that it became one of the standard treatments that we used to to treat uh, fat and fatty deposits. And it was something that I used in my office as well. You also developed um, the MISE, MISE, am I saying it right? What's M-O-H, MISE, micrographic surgery for the skin removal, the skin yeah, cancer removal? Let me removal. talk about MOSE micrographic surgery. When I was a resident at the University of Minnesota, in Wisconsin, down the road, was a doctor by the name of Frederick Mose. 
Frederick Mose was a surgeon who found a way to take off skin cancers like basal cell carcinomas and squamous cell carcinomas in a very precise fashion. So you'd take off the least amount of tissue and get the best possible results. Now, Frederick invented this during the 1940s. And in the old days, um, doctors would cut off the tissue and the pathologist would cut the tissue vertically and you could only see slices of the tissue. Well, Frederick said, what if we cut the tissue horizontally and then we could see the edges of the tissue, the middle of the tissue and all the tissue all together. And so he found a different way to slice the tissue so you could see the whole areas there and you could see where the cancer was invading into. So it was a very, very precise means of taking it on. Now, Frederick taught a lot of dermatologists and other people how to do that. And at the University of Minnesota, where I was, there were at least four or five people trained by Frederick Mose, and I was the recipient of that training. So when I came back, I had all the tools and everything else to learn to do it. And so I became one of the first in my area to do Mohs micrographic surgery. So by the time I had finished, I had done tens of thousands of cases. You became one of the best um, dermatologists in Canada, and then you had a health incident. Talk to me about what happened on the vacation, and you're yeah. scrunching up your face. <laughs> uh, that, that, you know, that's I, I'm always glad to talk about that. You know, in 2003, at the top of my career, mm. I was walking with my wife in Disneyland, the happiest place on earth, and my wife turned to me and said. What's wrong with you, hun? I said, I was taken aback. Uh, you know, I hadn't said anything wrong. I hadn't done anything wrong. <laughs> I hadn't even thunk anything wrong. So you're just but, saying, typical day, she's asking me what the problem is. <laughs> yeah, she's telling me. So I, I said, what do you mean? She said, listen to your foot. Your foot is flapping. So you I didn't said, even realize it, that your gait was changing when you were walking? No, no, right, not at all. Okay. And your brain is designed to lift up your feet when you're walking. They don't do anything. Well, my foot was flapping on the pavement with each step that I was taking. And she said, did you have a stroke? I said, dear, you're a doctor. I'm a doctor. If I had a stroke, I wouldn't be just flapping my foot. I would probably be lying on the pavement saying something unintelligible. And she said, well, when you get back, you better get this checked out. So when your spouse tells you to get it checked out, Fiona, <laughs> what do you do? Well, if you're my husband, you put it off until I nag him enough. But then... <laughs> so, so I saw dozens of doctors, which led to hundreds of doctors. And they did every test known to man. They did cat scans. They did brain scans. They even did scan scans. And you know what they showed at the end of the day? Nothing. That's right. Nothing. It's interesting that you say that as a medical profession going to all of these doctors, you probably have an advantage going in and, and saying, I am a doctor, something's wrong, compared to a layperson going in there and they're thinking they're just doctor shopping yeah. to figure well, out. But you know, these doctors were befuddled. They mm. didn't they couldn't get it. They thought I had a brain tumor or a slip disc or something that they could nail it down to, but they couldn't find anything wrong. Mm. So what they decided was to do more tests and more tests and more tests. <laughs> I think they even invented some tests just to do tests back then, but there was nothing to be found. And so they said, I'm going to send you to a world leading neurologist. Now, a neurologist is the brain guy. He's the guy that has all these ideas about what's wrong when the neurological system's not working right. So they sent me to see this neurologist. And I was able then to um, walk in and say, hi. He said, hi back. You better be sitting down when I tell you this. You have ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Get your affairs in order. You have six months to live. See, that's an interesting diagnosis from 
I mean, I'm sure as a doctor and your wife would have been researching this as well. What made him think that you had ALS? Because it's a disease that when you've ruled out everything else, that's all that's left. Really? So what are you thinking? So he sat you down and said you have ALS. What's your first thoughts? Did you think, did you believe him? My first thought was, and I asked him, is there a way to prove this diagnosis? Yeah. And and he said, yes, on autopsy. <gasps> because okay. as, a, as a medical professional, you probably have more, or you would have more of an understanding in regards to what that diagnosis is compared to... It's a terrible diagnosis. Yeah. That everybody ends up dying very rapidly and they end up dying terrible deaths because it keeps on progressing till you can't breathe and you end mm. up gasping for breath when it does happen. Mm. So when you when he said yes on the autopsy table in terms of proving the diagnosis, did you walk away from that meeting and go, he's correct? Or did you have a gut feeling that something? No, that that I, was a- I walked out and I slammed the door and I said, I'm not going to die to prove you wrong. Good on you. Okay. So, but you go through, when you're going through death, you go through all the phases of death that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said in her book on death and dying. You go through anger. You literally are angry at everybody. And of course I was mad. I was mad at my wife. I was mad at my children. I was mad at my patients. I, I was mad at my staff. And they all knew I was wrong, but I couldn't tell them why I was wrong because here, I'm going to be dead six months. I didn't want everybody to abandon me. Uh, I went through bargaining. Oh, God, please don't let this happen. I'll do anything if you don't let this happen. I I went through denial. Oh, there's nothing wrong. I just have a dropped right foot. Who knows what it is? But then my right hand started malfunctioning, and I couldn't use my right hand properly. So surgery was becoming a problem. But, you know, I was smart, Fiona, so I started to use my left hand. And I was able to adapt to become a left-handed surgeon. Wow. Now, now that's, that's incredible different. after 30-odd years. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, you know, and it's, it's remarkable because they didn't even have tools for left-handed doctors back then. So I had to invent them myself and get the, the machine shop to make them and things like that. So it was a very interesting time. And then you go through depression. Depression. Have you ever been depressed, Fiona? Not clinically. I mean, I think mm. everyone has their down times, but not for any length of... But, but depression is the worst. That's mm. when you can't sleep. That's when you can't eat. That's when you can't do anything. It really is the worst time. You lay in bed all day. You stare at the ceiling. You don't want to do anything. And why should you? Because you're mm. going to be dead anyhow. You know? mm. So I was so bad, I had decided I was going to kill myself. I wasn't going to die gasping for air Mm -hmm. like I had seen other people with ALS do. So before I did that, I went to my wife and I said to my wife, dear, what do I have? She said, I don't have the faintest idea. But she said, you're smart, you'll figure it out. And I said, dear, I've seen hundreds of doctors. They couldn't figure it out. How the heck am I supposed to figure it out? She said, well, I don't think you found the right doctor yet. It's an interesting point, isn't it? That In that comment, that gives you hope. And you'd obviously come to the conclusion that it, that you didn't actually feel that it was ALS. Yes, exactly. Was it because it wasn't progressing as ALS should? You know, it's funny. ALS is a very funny disease, and I don't think that is what I had. Mm. So I needed to put the pieces together. I really needed to figure it out. And, you know, my wife just has an intuition sometimes. You know, women have intuitions towards the, And she just said, no, it's not that. I don't know what it is, but it's not that, you know. And, and she had this intuition. How did you get on to, or how did you come to the actual diagnosis of what it was? Well, you know, after all this, you know, back in the early 2000s, something new was invented. You might've heard about it. It's called the internet. 
<laughs> I might have heard something about that. <laughs> you, you might have. You know, I, I think it was Al Gore that invented it or something like that. <laughs> At least so he says. Uh, but the important thing about it is, you know, if you were adaptive and had some smart friends, they could find anything in the world for you. And the internet back then was very primitive. You had to put your phone on a cradle and it would go <laughs> for like 15 minutes before it could connect. And if it did connect, which a lot of times it didn't. I remember could, the dial-up modems, you know, the noises that they made. Showing, you showing could, our you, age now. <laughs> you could really get in touch with me, but you had to communicate with uh, a computer to another by languages like DOS and things like that because our computers had no memory. Mm. So my friends helped me search the internet. And back then, the internet is just like now. It's got the world's best resources, but it's got garbage cans everywhere. So you got to be careful about the garbage cans as well. And so uh, my friends helped me find a doctor in Colorado Springs, Colorado, by the name of David Martz. Now, David had a story very similar to mine but he got worse much more rapidly than I did. And within weeks of his diagnosis, he was on his deathbed. He couldn't lift his head from the pillow. He could barely speak. Well, David was beloved by many doctors. And so doctors were coming up to say goodbye to David. And a doctor from Texas came up to see him. And he looked at David and he said, you know, there's something wrong with this picture. I don't think you have ALS. I don't think you have Lou Gehrig's disease. So I think you have uh, chronic Lyme's disease. I think you've been bitten by a tick. And that tick has caused a chronic neurological illness that we can't tell from Lyme's disease, from ALS, just to look at it. So what had happened is David said, what do I do? The doctor from Texas said, you don't need to do anything. I'm going to start you on treatment. And if I'm right, you'll get rapidly better. So David said, what do I have to lose? I'm dying. Mm. And he started him on treatment and it was like a miracle. Within two weeks, he was back to his regular activities. Like Lazarus, he had arisen from the dead. So is that the, is that the outcome? If you don't seek treatment, you do die from chronic well, Lyme. You know, it is a very difficult disease. People get worse generally very slowly, you know, and it's usually one thing after the other, and it usually affects many, many organs until it causes people to have problems with it. The difficulty with it is chronic Lyme's disease is a Herculean disease that looks like so many other diseases, and, and many, many doctors can't figure it out. Many doctors can't, don't understand it. And many doctors even deny that it exists. Well, there's some, there's lots of people that say that it exists in Australia and there's no, the powers to be say that it doesn't. So. Well, you know, I know many doctors that say it doesn't exist, but I'm proof positive it does exist, mm. you know, and uh, the thing about it is there are doctors that I call Lyme knowledgeable doctors, and there are a lot of doctors that are Lyme ignorant doctors. You know, it's funny, with COVID, we're willing to recognize chronic COVID disease mm. at the drop of the hat, mm. yet we can't recognize chronic Lyme disease. What's the, is there a blood test that they can do, or is it just start you on treatment if you get better, they know it's Lyme? You know, there are some blood tests, some people debate whether those blood tests are useful or not. And there's also commensal infections that go along with Lyme's disease, where you're not only affected by the Lyme bug, but you're also affected by uh, a couple of other things like Bartonella and a couple of other things that go along with it. So it's not always one infection. It's many, it's sometimes a, what they call a zoonosis where you have several infections going on at once. What's the treatment for Lyme's? Is there a set standard treatment? Well, they, there's a lot of debate about that. 
and there's a lot. You ask 10 different doctors, they'll get you 10 different answers. The, the standard treatment for uh, acute Lyme's disease is a cephalosporin or an erythromycin or doxycycline. Uh -huh. Those are the common ones. But when you're getting to chronic disease, that isn't enough. Right. So when when it's chronic, what's the... And if that's not enough, what do you do? The answer is, again, you need to see a doctor that's Lyme aware because there's okay. many treatments for it. And again, different doctors debate what's best for it. And so yeah. it's this best This is not medical be, advice, people. No, and this is <laughs> best to have the care of somebody that will work with you and know what it's about. And again, I don't give medical advice. I'm retired from medicine. I'm here to tell my story and mm -hmm. what I've gone through. There's, from my research, there seems to be a lot of um, treatments in regards to the oxygen chambers and so forth to help repair the body. Yeah. Again, those are, I, I, I would say, um, pseudoscience treatments for it. Uh, I, I wouldn't recommend those as mainstream treatments for it. Uh, those are, I say, on the verge of, of, you know, do they work? I don't know. There are no scientific studies showing that. How long, you mentioned that you were getting symptoms in your right hand, so you started being a left-handed surgeon. How long, did you have to give up surgery? Like how long until you sort of started... I was able to keep going till I retired in 2019. Right. How quickly since you started getting treatment did you actually see the benefits of it and the reversal of the symptoms? You know, I, I think, you know, my right hand was able to be able to be functional for my entire career. Yeah. And slowly it deteriorated after my career. Uh, but I was able to function completely through that whole period of time. So the answer is fairly shortly. Okay. So if it's still, de if it deteriorated after you retired, you're still having symptoms of the chronic Lyme. Yes. It's not, you know, there's many diseases in life we cannot cure. You know, there's diabetes, there's asthma, there's things that we can control, but we can't necessarily cure. Hmm. So did you ever go back to the neurologist and say, it's chronic Lyme? You know, I'm uh, still the, alive. Doc the doctor worked in my building and uh. I used to, when he'd get in the elevator, I'd say, you know, look, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> Great diagnosis. I said, you know, and you know, he'd laugh about that. But again, you know, it's like the old uh, story of four blind men looking at an elephant and one blind man looks at the trunk and he says this is what an elephant is and another blind man looks at the tail and says this is what an elephant lives and another blind man looks at the the leg and says this is what an elephant is and another one looks at the body and finds this is what an elephant is and uh, this is what goes on when blind men look at an elephant and the problem with medicine, every doctor has a certain amount of knowledge and they don't have knowledge of everything. And you can't expect them to have knowledge of everything. You know, in a regular medical appointment, you have four minutes for the doctor to figure out exactly what you have. And then he's moving on to the next patient to take over and, and figure out what they have. So it's, it's not a realistic proposition to in in the systems that exist in Australia and Canada and the United States to think a doctor in a four minute appointment will ever be able to get a grasp of all the medicine and figure out the complexities of complex medical problems. You have daughters. When you told them of the diagnosis of the ALS, what was their response? You know, they were pretty shocked. Yeah. You know, they were pretty taken aback by it. They were pretty worried about it. But, you know, they were also believers and, and you know, they, you know, Dad, you're strong. You'll get through this. Hmm. 
I I just wonder in terms of the mindset though. That's what interests me about people in terms of some people would have just taken that diagnosis and thrown their hands up in the air and said, "Oh well, that must be it. I'm you know I'm dying," and then others sort of reject that diagnosis, which is what you did, slamming the door and walking out, saying, I'm not going to die for you to have that diagnosis. And I think in, in everybody, you know, in medicine, there are some bad diagnoses that we can't treat. Okay. It's a given. Some people do have ALS that we can't treat. Mm. But for goodness sakes, I think you need to expire all diagnoses before you get there. You need mm. to uh, try and, and because, you know, let's suppose that, 10% of people diagnosed with ALS actually have something else that you can treat. Well, we've just cheated them of those years of life. Mm. 100%. And particularly if they're where you were in terms of depression and so forth, and then they end up, I mean, you mentioned that you were considering taking your own life because you didn't want to suffocate to death, which is ultimately the the outcome. Um you know, I wonder how many people actually go down that route rather than, hmm, it's interesting. You know, and, and I think, you know, it's surprising, you know, we, another epidemic that's been going on in addition to COVID disease has been mental illness and suicide. And, and in fact, you know, I'm sure in your country, like in mine, there's a lot of overdoses going on from, from opioids and other drugs. I'm sure a lot of those are actually suicide attempts. Um, so, you, you know, it's it's a, a conspiracy of silence that goes on. Uh, all I will say with that is that I 100% agree, and I'm sitting in Melbourne, which was the most lockdown city in the world, and having never had any issues of mental illness before, I now have really bad um, social anxiety in regards to going out and being in crowded people as a result of two years of lockdown. Well, so all I can say, I've been to Melbourne. It's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. But I couldn't imagine it to be locked out for two years. I mean, yeah. it was a vibrant, loving, moving yeah. city where yeah. where everything was happening twenty four seven, and you know it was, you yeah. know. That's what made it so beautiful is the activity there and everything else. Yeah. So again, I think, you know, these things that have gone on have really crippled people and hurt them as well. It has. And that's considering the police response to people that are speaking out about uh, their opinions in regards to governments in Victoria at the moment, that is probably all I will comment and I'm sure that if people want to YouTube what I'm talking about, they can do that on their own Well, time. I, I, I think, you know, it's, you know, there, there is a control factor going on and other things going on. So the answer is uh, I think we're closer to the end than to the beginning of the pandemic now. We certainly are seeing, in, at least in Canada, is still a lot of cases and still a lot of virus and we still are getting more deaths than I'd like to see. But, you know, I think we're getting to the area that we just have now stopped uh, the fact that people have to prove they're vaccinated to get on planes. And mm. we have just, you know, we've gotten away from that sort of thing. So mm. it is now moving forward. Well, I, I hope so. That's... <laughs> I hope so. All I can say is that there is an election in Victoria in November and people need to research what political party they wish to vote for and not have short memories. And that is all I will say on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope, yes, I hope that's that's uh, that's the case in regards to coming to a state of normality. Doc, what, what's, the, what's your situation now? You said that you were sort of still progressed in regards to to your symptoms after you retired. You know, so I, you I don't now? know if it's progression or not. My right hand doesn't function as well as I'd like to. So I'm getting some rehab done on it and some electrical stimulation on it. Uh, my right foot will never come back. I have to wear a brace on my right foot called a UFO that lifts my right foot when I walk. But as long as I have that, that's fine. And so I'm not uh, let's put it this way. I have some disabilities. Fine. 
I'm happy to live with those disabilities because I can do everything else that I want to do and need to do. I love the fact that it's called a UFO. Is that what the you could I, say I, the government, I, I, the American I, government, a whole I, lot of investigation? Just... I, 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 if I said UFO, I misspoke. It's an AFO. AFO. Oh, I liked UFO A-F-O. better. <laughs> yeah. AFO. Oh, you just save Congress a whole lot of time. <laughs> That's right. We, we, we need to investigate that more. <laughs> now you've written a number of books as well. So talk to me about how those books came about. Well, you know, when you go through something like I did and you find a cure for or a treatment for things, you really wonder if you've done everything you get. You have to wonder whether you've given everything back, whether you've done everything you could, you know, whether you really lived, whether you really loved, whether you really mattered. And, and you have to, at the same time, wonder if that is something you want to do. So many people that go through near-death experiences change their life. And mm. they look around and see how they can help. So I started to give back. And I started to give back by helping things. And you know, women in society are still not honored as much as they should. So in Edmonton, we have a group called the YWCA, and they ran an event called the Women of Distinction event every year. And I became the primary sponsor for that, where we honored women in our society. Now, at that event, we give awards for women in various categories. And in one category that we gave it was the Turning Point Award. And a beautiful lady by the name of Harriet Tinka decided to apply for that award. Now, Harriet had a story very similar to mine, but very different. Harriet was a model that used to walk in New York and Milan and Paris and do all the things that models do, but she got tired of it because it's such a dog-eat-dog breakfast, and she decided to go to her second love, which is accounting. Now, she decided to take that at the University of Calgary, which is a city about two and a half hours just outside of Edmonton. And uh, she went to Calgary because it's far enough from Edmonton. She used to live in Edmonton before she became a model, and that way she could be away from her parents. Well, at Calgary, she was befriended by a psychopath that ended up kidnapping her, stabbing her, and leaving her for dead. Oh, my goodness. Now, Harriet ended up in the hospital in Calgary. She doesn't know how she got there, but when she was there, she was getting rehab and she was terribly beside herself. She was crying and and miserable and so on. And a young girl by the name of Amber would wheel down the hallway in a wheelchair. And Amber's story was amazing in that she was in a car accident where she lost use of both of her legs And she lost both of her parents, but yet she was happy as a lark. And she asked Harriet for her story. And she immediately told Harriet, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself. She said, look at me. I've lost my legs. I've lost my parents, but I'm happy. I'm just happy to be alive. And I'm going to do something with my life. And she challenged Harriet to use her story to empower others. Now, Harriet had applied for the award, not to win the award, but to meet me. She wanted to take me for lunch and talk to us about her stories. And she said, Dr. Laika, we have to write a book together. And that's where we end up writing the book, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life. It took a couple of years to write, and it was released in 2020, just before, just at the pandemic started. Do you think that the pandemic has uh, reset people's or enabled them a, a small, I mean, obviously there's not not as much as something, a health issue or a, a kidnapping or anything, but do you think it's enabled people to recalibrate what was important in life? You know, I think the pandemic has caused a lot of interesting things. Okay. I think for some it's caused a post-traumatic disease. If mm-hmm. you haven't noticed, there's a lot of anger out there, mm. anger everywhere. Mm. And there's there's a lot of denial. 
<laughs> no, there's no COVID. It doesn't exist. It's not anywhere. You know, there's a lot of depression. Then, mm. at the other hand, there's a lot of people that have come full circle and are learning to live a better life, recalibrating their life, doing more with their life, and just doing better. So the pandemic was a like a massive effect on people. It had massive results. And I don't think we've seen all those results yet. How do you think your book, because the sales spiked for the pandemic, it was fantastic in terms of book sales for you. <laughs> well, you know, people were staying at home. What were they going to do but read, <laughs> exactly. you know? So it, it was a, a very, you know, I it affected me because I had planned to do a speaking tour. And, mm. you know, the problem is the speaking industry all dried up. So in addition to doing uh, my book, I decided to start a podcast that then became a syndicated radio show. So it literally took me off in a different career than what I was in because of the way that it went. And right now, my syndicated radio show has 12 shows a week, and it now has 3 million listeners a month. That's amazing. What was your, do you still have the podcast though? You know, it, they're sort of melded together. Yeah. You know, my once we do a radio show, it then eventually gets on my on my website and it gets into the channels that that are on the podcast channels. So it happens, but not as quickly. How do people find the radio show? It's on a site called AMFM twenty four seven. Okay. And they're all archived there. Okay. So the thing is, I do. Um, there's 12 shows archived there a week mm-hmm. yet i'm only i only have the ability to put two of them on my website a week so we're a little bit behind <laughs> talk to me in regards to the correlation that you saw in regards to well i suppose not so much the correlation what do you think people were getting out of the book during the pandemic that saw it spike so much other than just being at home like what do you think that it was well, let me, that really let me tell you what Harriet knife out were 13 golden pearls. Now, these are golden pearls of wisdom. Now, golden pearls actually exist in the South Pacific, in Indonesia and in Thailand, and they're beautiful things. In fact, they're so rare, a single solitary golden pearl uh, costs about $10,000. So what's beautiful about a pearl is it starts because a Act, a grain of sand gets inside of the shell of the oyster. Instead of destroying it, instead of try, the oyster walls it off with this beautiful, wonderful material called luster. And what Harriet and I found were these beautiful golden pearls that are inside every one of us. And what they do is they are golden pearls of wisdom inside. So people would read these and understand that this was was something that they would want to do or get towards or or develop in their lives even more. What sort of pearls are they? Give us give us some insight. <laughs> you come on, Alan. You can't leave me hanging like that. <laughs> I, I can read all of them to you. Let me start with the first one. And the first one, it's number one for a reason. The first one is love. Now, where would we be without love? I think all of us need love right then and right there, because without love, we would be nowhere. And this is the way we started is with a quote. And my first quote is, love, I believe that dreaming is stronger than reality. Desire is more potent than apathy. Hope is more powerful than despair. Joy always triumphs over sorrow. That laughter is the ultimate cure for man's foibles. And I believe that love is stronger than hate, the greatest gift of all. Mm. That's a quote I made to start off the first chapter. That's beautiful. Okay. Then there's a story that reads off each chapter. And then there's the discussion that Harriet and I had when we were writing the chapter. So it it's like you're a fly on the wall listening to our dialogue as we're writing it. 
So it, it's a very unique book in that there's the 13 golden pearls and the, the stories and the, and the dialogue. And so that's what I think made it unique is that this, the book is very different mm. than any other book motivational book you have out there mm, it's almost like a written podcast if if you're privy to your conversations with harriet yeah 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 that's interesting now the book is called the secrets to living a fantastic life and where can people get it i think the easiest way is on amazon because amazon is everywhere and is. like in australia if they want to buy it they'll get it locally in australia Fantastic. If they're in New Zealand, they'll get it locally in New Zealand. So they don't have to get it shipped from any place or anything like that. It's right there. Are you back on the speaking tour now? You know, I haven't started going on speaking tours now. I've been so busy with my, my own radio and show on and so on that I haven't launched it yet. But I'm sure that will start soon. You see, things are starting to open up and people are wanting to get together again. Uh, they're a little afraid yet of getting together in big settings and having a lot of people together, just like they are in Australia, you know, the getting all, but you know, it's starting to open up. And I suspect that in the near future, there'll be such a demand that I'll be out there speaking again and doing things again. Well, people can find you at Dr. Alan Lyka, L-Y-C-K-A. Is that the correct pronunciation of yeah. your surname? Yeah, that's right. And it's Dr. D-R-A-L-L-E-N-L-Y-C-K-A.com. And you can find out everything about me there. There's all the information on speaking. There's also information on my coaching there. And there's information on other things I do there as well. So, uh Check into that website. Check me out on social media as well, because there's a lot of good information there. And you'll be able to find out some good things. Perfect. Cheers, Doc. Thank you. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. Bye.